And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today, rocking and rolling through the week. Yes, it's Thursday, coming up to the end of the broadcast week, and we've had great shows, and we're going to continue today with a fantastic show. One of my favorite ongoing segments that we have on this program is we get the great Carl Keating on the show. Carl, as you know, is the fellow who kick-started the modern Catholic apologetic movement here in the United States that certainly has influenced apologetics around the world. Through Catholic Answers, he's written many, many great books, including some Catholic apologetic classics himself. And we've been having him on periodically to blow the dust off some of these Catholic works. Uh, maybe they're sitting on your bookshelf or maybe the local used books uh, dealer down the street has it on the shelf. And it's a shame because these things are gold. They are still good. Uh, they they uh, still have uh, good information and also they're fun to read as well. So today, Carl Keating is going to be coming up on the show after this break coming up. And we're going to talk about yet another Catholic apologetic classic. And that is the works of David Goldstein. Or David Goldstein. Uh, David Goldstein written several books. He's a convert from Judaism to Catholicism. And uh, he's one of those rare authors um, that is from a Jewish background who converted to Catholicism, who has written books as a way to as an outreach to uh to jews and uh um there's not a lot of that in the catholic field in protestantism though uh there's a lot uh there there are protestant ministries uh dedicated to sharing the gospel of jews um but not a lot of material from catholics so uh it's very important and actually it's, it's pretty good reads as well so that's what we're going to do on the other side of the break carl keating we're going to talk about this Catholic apologetic classic. On this side of the break, we're going to sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding the Fallacy segment, which today's fallacy, by the way, is judgmental language fallacy. And so we're going to get judgy. And we're going to also look at an early church father. Today's early church father. Uh, you got to love this, folks. Uh, early church fathers come in many different shapes and forms. This particular one's a book. In fact, it's not just a book. It's a sacramentary. And a sacramentary of Serapion, to be exact. And, uh, yeah, so <laughs> that's why I love the early church fathers. Sometimes it's writings of individuals. Sometimes it's unknown authors. Sometimes it's epitaphs. Sometimes it's uh, uh, sacramentaries. You know, it's just part of uh, the evidence from the early church in regards to the original faith handed on by Christ and his apostles to us. And uh, very, very important material indeed for uh, sharing and defending the faith. So that's what we got on our docket today. Carl Keating, 
Finding Fallacy, Judgmental Language, and the Sacramentary of Serapion. But before we begin, I want to welcome all of you to the show. I hope everybody's having a great day. All of you listening on radio around the country and, of course, the live stream peeps, howdy. And I also want to welcome all of you listening on live stream through the various distribution centers out there around the world and in the future. So it's good that you're with us and uh, God willing, this will be a fun program. And uh, in case you can't hear the whole interview, don't worry. Uh, every show, I point this out because it's a great resource to be able to, to use and utilize to help friends, help yourself, and uh, do a little evangelism. And that is the flagship website, virginmostpowerfulradio.org, or our download app that you can put on your your iPhone or cell phone. I know a lot of people do a lot of live streaming in their car, and uh, I know I do. So that's one way you can do that is uh, you can listen to this show and all the other shows Virgin Most Powerful produces right there, either on the phone app or the flagship website, virginmostpowerfulradio.org. And uh, this is usually up pretty quick, too. Uh, and uh, so if you maybe you can't hear all of our interview with Carl, uh, Crying Baby, or perhaps, uh, you know, a meeting at work or who knows what. Uh, don't worry. You can do that. And also, you can share it with friends, too. So if someone's looking for resource material for uh, speaking to a Jewish person about the faith, they need to know a little bit about David Goldstein because there's some good books that are out there as classics. So this would be a great program to share with them. So, all right. Uh, got all that done. Let's go to our first segment, which is Finding the Fallacy. As you know, every show we look at informal fallacy. Today is no different. Today's is judgmental language. The definition I found on the Internet, uh, actually, I, I'm going to nuance it a little bit. Uh, judgmental language is a subset of the red herring fallacy. It employs insults, compromising, or pejorative language to influence the recipient's judgment. And that certainly is true, but I think that is more of a very aggressive form of this particular fallacy. There is a, a less aggressive and therefore I think even more dangerous uh, way of using judgmental language to influence the reader or hearer. And that is where you inject certain judgments that are unanswered or unargued for within your statements. For example, characterizing certain people while you're discussing something like the evil Pope said such and such, or the Romanist theologian said so-and-so or, uh, you know, something like that. So the idea is sending messages that some people are good people. Some people are bad people. Some sources are good. Some sources are bad. And without actually arguing as to whether or not that's true. You know, uh, you could have a competent source that maybe you don't particularly care for personally, but that doesn't affect the competency, not necessarily, at least. And so judgmental language fallacy in its most subtle form, I think, is that, that in some ways you can kind of sneak your conclusions in the argument. And that would persuade the listener so that when the conclusion comes, it sounds like, oh, yeah, well, that seems to necessarily follow but what they don't realize is that you've been making all these little hints along the way by kind of framing uh, the characters, the people, the, the evidence in a certain way. 
So that's our finding of the fallacy for today, the judgmental language fallacy. Let's meet our early church father. And like I said, it's not an early church father. It's the sacramentary of Serapion. Sacramentary, uh, by the way, uh, who is Serapion? Serapion is Bishop of Themis in Egypt. Uh, was previously, uh, w- you know, which we actually have as a segment here on the Early Church Fathers. We've talked about Serapion. Uh, but we haven't talked about the sacramentary. And uh, the sacramentary uh, is in connection with letters addressed to him in 360 by Athanasius of Alexandria. We have 11th century manuscript discovered on Mount Athos Laura. Uh, that constitutes a unique example of the Ecologion, or sacramentary or missal, ascribed to Serapion of Themis. Uh, this Ecologion, in Greek, consists of some 30 prayers. It is certainly of Egyptian origin and dates from about the year 350 AD. So it's certainly within the early church fathers period. Uh, with an earlier date being preferred to a latter one. Uh, it's 30 prayers. The first and the 15th are ascribed specifically in their headings to Serapion. And the rest, in view of their style and content, are certainly by the same author. The 18th of the 30 prayers are of Eucharistic character. Seven concern baptism and confirmation and three for ordination, one for the blessing of holy oils, and one for funerals. So basically, it's an ancient prayer book, you know, attached to an early church father, Serapion. The appended letter uh, concerning father and son are not Serapion style, as witnessed by the uh, Eucalolian, uh, and by his treatise on against the uh, Manichaeans, the letter is somewhat clumsy, a clumsy defense of the Nicene doctrine. So the letter that's attached to the sacramentary obviously is not the work of Serapion. The liturgy or the mass represented by this work is much in common with the so-called liturgy of St. Mark, but also exhibits numerous peculiarities attributed to Serapion, a prayer for the union of the church drawn from the Didache, an apostolic father, uh, is interposed between the consecration of the bread and that of the wine. And there is an epiclesis, the calling down of the logos upon the species. And there seems to be in all to uh, be no considerable influence of Gnosticism upon the liturgy as well. So those are notes from Jurgen's Faith Early Church Fathers. Um, let's see, do I have time to read maybe a short prayer just so you can get a, a feel for what we're looking at here? Uh, the prayer over the chrism, uh, the chrism in which the baptized are anointed says, God of powers, aid every soul that turns to you and comes under your powerful hand in your only begotten. We beseech you that through your divine and invisible power of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, may you effect this charism, a divine and heavenly operation, so that the baptized and the anointed be tracing the sign of the cross of the only begotten through the cross. And uh, that is Serapion. 
uh, Sacramento. Coming up next, Carol Keating. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, in Hands-On Apologetics. And uh, we're going to have a, one of my favorite segments. I think uh, this is something I look forward to every month. I always look forward to talking to Carl Keating, but especially Carl Keating addressing a Catholic apologetic classic. And today we're going to talk about uh, classics written by David Goldstein, who is a convert from Judaism. And in case you're one of the very few people who don't know who Carl Keating is, he's the founder of Catholic Answers. And nowadays he's a full-time author. He's written over 16 books and have been published on various things, including some Catholic apologetic classics themselves, such as uh, Catholicism, Fundamentalism, Debating Catholicism series, Book for Life, No Apology. He also writes on other genres, such as outdoor, self-publishing, and even fiction. And uh, you can check out all his great stuff at carlkeating.com. Carl, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Gary, it's always a delight and a privilege to be with you. Well, hey, like I said, this is the highlight of my month. Uh, not only talking to you, but to blow the dust off these classics, because you love them, I love them, and I wish other people could love them as well. Well, I think if other people came across them and had the chance to read them, their appreciation would match yours and mine. Yes, I totally agree. But before we do that, uh, how have you been? You doing any hiking? or? Well, I've been spending actually the last few days arranging to get permits to do hikes, mostly in the uh, Sierra Nevada of California. Uh, everything's permitted. There are quotas on the trails. And today, this morning, luckily, I was able to log on at exactly 7 o'clock in the morning to the 2nd and was able to snap up a permit I've been trying to get for weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've got about six or seven now multi-day hikes lined up there for the summer months. Beautiful. All right. So you have your, your uh, docket all set for the summer, and uh, God willing, uh, well, it's in California, so the weather will cooperate more chances than not. Well, you know, the problem this year we have is a, is a good-bad problem. We're having record snows in the mountains which is good for a state that's been in drought for many years. On the other hand, when the record snows up there, the snow is still there, at least in the early summer on the trails, and movement is difficult, and some trails would not be accessible. So what I had talked to somebody online about, I said, what I would wish is that the snowfalls continue throughout the Sierra, except, miraculously, all the trails I want to go on are completely dry of snow. (laughs) That would be nice. Yeah, I wonder if yeah. there's a patron saint that could do that. <laughs> well, he, whoever it is better get busy fast. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, that's cool. So uh, congratulations on getting the permits and everything. And and uh, it sounds like uh, you're all ready to run on that. And uh, so, yeah. okay, let's no, yeah, go I ahead. I have to get in shape, of course, but I've got a few months, so I think I'm. it's possible in theory. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But let's, okay. Turn, well, let's turn to our uh, our books of the day. Yes, yes. Tell us, uh, so this is uh, David Goldstein that I think is not a very well-known author to most people. I, I think he's probably unknown to almost everybody. I mean, yeah. honestly, I could uh, talk to maybe some of the younger apologists who you know are doing podcasts or whatever they are now, and say, what do you think of David Goldstein? I said, who? 
you know, they've never heard of them, I'm sure. Uh, so that's it's, it's understandable because uh, he lived quite a while ago, and he went out of fashion in a way quite a while ago. But uh, he's one of those quintessentially American characters, in a way, uh, that we ought to keep in mind and whose books I wish somebody would, would bring back into print. Uh, I have three or four or five of his books, and they're all old. Nothing's been republished in, in decades. But David Goldstein was born in London in 1870. He died in Boston in 1958. So he was had just short of his 78th birthday. Hmm. Uh, he was a convert from Judaism to the Catholic faith. And he founded an organization called Catholic Campaigners for Christ. This was in the early first or second decade of, of the of this previous century. Uh, and he was an interesting character because, like not a few Jewish immigrants to the U.S. in those years of the late 19th century, he became a socialist. He was prominent as an organizer for the Socialist Labor Party of America, hmm. uh, but later he became disenchanted with Marxism, and he became very opposed to socialism and worked against it. And so he had a kind of double conversion. One conversion was religious, from Judaism to Catholicism. The other was political, from pro-socialism to anti-socialism. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know if it, it was his faith that influenced him, or was it just uh, him realizing the, the problems with socialism? Well, I think the, the faith came later. Uh, okay. But they were also sort of in parallel. He already was becoming disenchanted with socialism uh, in the late 19th century. And then uh, he met a woman named Martha Moore Avery. Uh, and with her, in 1903, he published a book that manifested his um, disappointment with socialism. And the title, by the way, really applies to the situation nowadays. The book was called Socialism, The Nation of Fatherless Children. Hmm. Today we could have something like Wokeism, The Nation of Fatherless Children. Yeah. So a kind of parallel there, you know, that was now 120 years ago. But it turned out that, so that book came out in 1903. But uh, Mrs. Moore, Mrs. Avery, I should say, uh, and Goldstein uh, converted to Catholic faith, she in 1904 and he in 1905. Hmm. And then uh, they became active with some... Uh, Catholic groups that already were existing that were trying to inoculate Catholic working people against socialism and even more so against communism within particularly the union movement. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so there, you know, his disapp disappointment with socialism, I think in a way prompted his turning to look t toward Catholicism. And, uh, you know, not an uncommon situation back then. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it's, it's uh, 
Yeah, the the church is uh, with social teachings is very much for the labor movement, but also against socialism. So, uh, but I, I'm I'm trying to think if there were encyclicals against socialism that early. I think most of them were well, in the yeah, 30s. Actually, or well, Rerum Novarum in 1892, Leo the 13th. That was okay. the first social encyclical. It's yeah. title often is given in various ways in English, but often as on human labor, something like that. Mm-hmm. I guess that's not a direct translation of the words rerum novarum. As always in encyclicals issued by popes that are in Latin, the title <laughs> is, simply, is simply the first couple words of the, the encyclical, whatever those mm-hmm. words might be. And they may not be a, a, a real title in, in our normal sense of the word. So on human labor is often the way that 1892 encyclical is understood uh, in title wise. But in that, yes, uh, Leo XIII comes out against socialism. And his, his very point in there is he's trying to, and this is an impetus for him, he's trying to oppose socialism, but also talking about the rights and duties respective to one another of labor and management. Okay. And uh, this is the blockbuster encyclical is the first one of its kind. And basically almost every pope since, except maybe John Paul I, uh, has issued one or more social encyclicals in the years since. But this is the first one, and in a way the most important one. And so this came out 11 years before Goldstein and Avery published their book, Socialism, the, uh, the Nation of Fatherless Children. So uh, although I don't have direct uh, access to anything now of his that says he was really influenced by the 13th, I have to presume that he was, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, yeah. So he, so he's around the turn of the century. Uh, Catholic, ans- uh, Catholic Action was also uh, influential in the 20s. Would he be before Catholic Action gets off the he, ground? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, so he's he's really an early apologist in the U.S. Yeah. for Catholicism. Now, his much of it's phrased in terms of anti-socialism because the people he's speaking in front of are often middle or lower class folks who are attracted to socialism for various reasons in, in that era. And uh, most of them would not be Catholic. And he's trying to inoculate them against socialism. And part of that, it goes hand in hand for him to explain the Catholic faith. This is where the answer is. It's not in socialism, he says. It's not in what Marx taught. It's not what Engels taught. It's not what the American Socialist Party leaders taught. Uh, They have perceived problems legitimately, but they don't have the right solution. And his time within socialism in the U.S. was a learning experience for him because it taught him, yes, here are the problems. I can see the problems. But socialism is not going to solve them. It will only introduce some problems of its own. Yeah, 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 very good. Yeah, I can imagine that would be a tough crowd because you know from my reading you know in the teens is uh you have anarchist you have uh you know the labor movement was uh 
you know, they weren't afraid to start throwing fists if they need to on both sides, management and labor. So uh, that would be a, a difficult crowd to step in and, you know, try to speak against socialism. Yeah, you know, I, I've i read about that era in American history. It's it's not one that I would be as comfortable with taking the, the lectern as I would be nowadays. Yeah, you know, exactly. At least I have a sense nowadays, however much certain people may heckle me or whatnot, and that's happened. I'm not too much worried about somebody storming the platform. Yeah, right. <laughs> back, in the, back in those days, it happened, you yeah. know. Because people, especially people so engaged in politics, were so enamored with a political ideology that uh, they ended up, you know, using their fists or worse to get their points across. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So in a way, he's kind of a trailblazer, you know, this uh, uh, because there wasn't, uh, you know, like... uh, uh, what do I want to say? Catholic Evidence Guild or anything like that? It doesn't seem like there's that kind of organization. No, not yet. No, he was yeah. early. He was early. Right. All right. I hear the music coming up, but we're chatting with Carl Keating, talking about the works of David Goldstein. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We are chatting with Carl Keating, uh, talking about the Catholic apologetic classics written by David Goldstein. And uh, so far, we talked a little bit about his uh, book on socialism, The Nation of Fatherless Children. And uh, yeah, boy, what a rough, rough time to be doing this. Now, you said that he founded or he joined uh, uh, sort of a, a Catholic ministry? Yeah, there was an existing one called the Militia of Christ, founded by uh, a priest. And the purpose of that was precisely to inoculate Catholic workers against socialism and communism. Okay. Uh, so that that organization, which you know, must have disappeared early on, I think, uh, it's, it's not to be confused with the present-day um, Organizations that have similar names. I think that I think that just disappeared early on, mm-hmm. but that was in the Boston area. Um, before the break, we were mentioning the uh, potential uh, violence that could occur back in those years, particularly. And uh, I happened just to open up a book of Goldstein's that we'll mention a little later in the program, but uh, in his foreword. To the, uh, the second edition of it, he, he's mentioning where he goes and, and how well his work has been received. But he also talks about the places uh, where he had a little bit of trouble. He mentioned uh, in Sacramento, California, the communists of the area uh, tried to put the kibosh on holding the Catholic meeting in the town. And worse off actually was the town of Nelsonville, Ohio where he said the Ku Klux Klan exploded a bomb that shook the city and kept a, and they kept a cross burning during the two hours that the meeting was in progress. Wow. So, so there he got, a, a, you know, these crazed people burning a cross and exploding bombs in town while you're trying to give 
your presentation about the bona fides of the Catholic faith, uh, that takes some nerve to not step down from the podium, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, or at least have a so, shield or something, or, you know. Yeah, yeah. Hey, wow. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, let me talk a little more about Goldstein the man. Um, his parents actually were of Dutch extraction. I think maybe they came directly from the Netherlands to London. And uh, the family is very, very poor when they got to New York, uh, which was in 1888 when, uh, you know, Goldstein was still a teenager at that point. And then they went on to Boston. Uh, he said that uh, poverty was a lot of my father and mother. And the father worked hours and hours at end at a, at a bench making cigars. That was his job. And uh, he said they were both his mother and father born of Orthodox Jewish parents. But like most of the Jews in the New York of the time or the Boston of the time, they had pretty well come to the equivalent of what we would call Christmas and Easter Catholics. These were Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur Jews. That's the way he put it. Hmm. Uh, so, so they had an Orthodox Jewish background, but they weren't practicing very much. And uh, he said, you know, they, practiced, they went to the synagogue, at least on those holy days, and he said, if only for the children's sake, as Jewish fathers and mothers often say. Okay, So hmm. it might not be too surprised that uh, Goldstein quit school when he was only 11 years old. And he began, began to work in a tobacco factory somewhere, you know, kind of job to what his father had. Mm-hmm. And he said uh, his real education began there, talking to his fellow workers. And uh, he met eventually such people as Samuel Gompers and Henry George, who were both late 19th century economic reformers in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Goldstein supported each of those guys when he, when he ran for, um, or at least Henry George, when, when George ran for mayor of New York in 1886. Um, then you know, his family moved to Boston, and he, he was inspired by a popular novel of the time. It's still available, uh, called Looking Backward. It's by Edward Bellamy. And it was a kind of utopian-esque novel. In, in the story... The narrator talks about how things were in the old days, which would mean at the time that the book is written, the story is supposedly way in the future, and uh, how much things have improved because you know everything became socialistic and and now it's it's like utopia, okay? But it's it's the kind of book that's poo-pooed nowadays, even by socialists. But it was a popular book in the late 19th century in America looking backward. Uh, but it was after that reading of Bellamy's book that Goldstein started to get involved in the local union movement. And that's where he first encountered Marxism. And he was greatly attracted to it. And uh, so he joined the Socialist Labor Party of America. And he said his parents were just horrified when he learned about this. But, but effectively, you know, he was 
and most a cultural Jew. He wasn't practicing in any way. But he, he found that he was had the talents to be a good organizer, which, of course, would prove valuable later on when he became a Catholic. Um, because apologists need to be good organizers to get you know the word out. Mm-hmm. And uh, he often found himself on the front page of the newspapers. And yet, as he said, even though his parents were horrified that he became a socialist and a member of the Social Labor Party, they were very proud that he appeared on the newspaper. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's funny. Um, yeah, so he, he actually ran for mayor of Boston in 1897, but he didn't quite win. <laughs> he got only 1% of the vote. So he's a little, wow. little far from being at the head of the, of the, of the, of the race. Uh, but during this time, he met uh, Martha Moore Avery, who also had been influenced by that book by Bellamy. And they became lifelong friends. And uh, uh, he became the secretary of a, of a kind of nonprofit school for political economy that she founded in Boston. I don't think it was, it wasn't a normal school, but it was for something for adults to go to and you know, be indoctrinated into socialism, something like that. Uh, but eventually he became disenchanted with what he saw as the irreligious and immoral implications of Marxism. Because uh, he, he said he always believed strongly in family values. So when a prominent minister who was part of the um, socialist movement of Boston left his wife and children for, for another woman. Uh, he became a very loud critic of that minister. And of course, um, that didn't ingratiate him with those in the Socialist Party who approved of what this minister did. Hmm. And, and that bothered Goldstein even more. So uh, he and Avery and some others who were in the statewide socialist movement, when it had its annual convention, they proposed a resolution that the organization would repudiate any attack on religion and, and sexual libertinism and so on. But the motion was defeated by a big margin. Hmm. And... Uh, but but he stayed in the movement Goldstein did for a while, trying to you know promote his his argument here. But the more he did so, the more he became isolated, and he was sort of a lone wolf. Hmm. And uh, so he, eventually, he resigned from the movement, and uh, at about 1902, and became strongly anti-Marxist, anti-socialist. And as I said, he and Avery then got together to publish a book, Socialism, The Nation of Fatherless Children, because what he had seen happening was that socialism, the political movement, ended up being also a social, anti-familial movement, and it broke up families. And he was very much in favor of families, even though at this point he's not married, you know. So that was... His transition, you know, he got deeply into socialism and Marxism, but he saw it from the inside. In a way, it reminded his story reminds me of that of Whitaker Chambers, whose years were 1901 to 1961. And Chambers uh, went to Columbia University in New York, and there 
became a Marxist, ultimately an actual member of the Communist Party, and in the 1930s was a communist agent in the underground. And he later you know, went away from all that, opposed that, and wrote in 1952 his autobiography called Witness, which is one of the best books I've ever read, probably certainly the best autobiography I've ever read, Witness. And he explains much as what, uh, it's, it's in parallel to, to what Goldstein went through, where he said one of the things that made him, uh, Chambers, leave communism was that one one night he woke up from a dream or something and heard the cries of the people that Stalin was executing. You know, that's what came to him, you know, in his dream and his, his immediate wakefulness. And he and he said that was that was the last straw. He just he just left communism. So Goldstein had a similar conversion that had its intellectual end, but also what we would call an affective end. He saw what the movement he was then part of was doing to the family. And he had such a regard for the family that he realized there was something seriously wrong with the movement. And so he got out. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very easy to hold something as true if it's just a intellectual proposition, but once you see its effects in the real world, uh, you know, that's really where your eyes get open, I think. Yeah, I think we're going to see that kind of thing now with the current analog to this in my mind, which is the woke movement. Mm -hmm. uh, but we'll talk about that after the break. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. Uh, we're chatting with Carol Keating, talking about the classic apologist and author, David Goldstein. More to come right after this. Stay tuned, everybody. Back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Carol Keating, talking about the classic uh, apologist and author, uh, David Goldstein. And uh, Carl, right before the break, you're going to make a parallel between socialism and the modern woke movement. What? Hello? Yep. Okay, you're on. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. I think we're going to see some, a parallel between uh, the current wokeism and, and its ideology uh, and the kind of thing that Goldstein went through. Remember, as I say, he, he was inside socialism. He lived there. He promoted it. But then he looked around and saw what its effects actually were. And that made him wake up to its fundamental problems. And I think we have a a parallel situation nowadays with wokeism that results now in many people being seriously uh, discriminated against, losing their job because they they think or say the wrong thing, uh, you know, being booted out of the academy they no longer can teach, for simply saying or thinking things that until a week ago were always perfectly fine, you know. Mm -hmm. But you've got this kind of this uh, this ideology that is vicious in its application. And I think a lot of people who uh, so easily at this point are still endorsing what wokeism does, are, at some point are going to look around and see what it's really been doing. And they're going to have a kind of conversion against it. Okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, during the break, I looked at uh, one of the three Goldstein books I have here in front of me, and I should mention them. Uh, 
The first is Autobiography of a Campaigner for Christ. And this one came out, I think it was in 1931, uh, the original edition. No, 1936. And uh, I do see that, yes, in there, he does say that Leo XIII's encyclical, Rerum Novarum, was important in his conversion. Hmm. And a few pages after that, he has a couple pages titled, subtitle, Why Did I Become a Catholic? And there might be 20 paragraphs, and they each begin with the word because. The first one is, because I believe in God, a monotheistic God. Then, because I believe in the Old Testament as the Word of God. So he goes through, in the first half dozen or so uh, of his paragraphs, saying, in essence, because he accepted Judaism, and he believes what Judaism was really teaching in the Old Testament. But also, he said, but I also believe in the Messiah, and that I've come to believe that Christ was the Messiah. And then he follows on that, going back again to everything from the Psalms to Melchizedek to further explain why he believed Christ to be the Messiah, uh, and then why he believed Christ founded the Catholic Church, and then why, as someone intent on doing the will of God, he needed to belong to that church. So... uh, So this autobiography of a campaigner for Christ was written, you know, when he was in his mid-50s already. Uh, another book I have for him, or these two others, sort of go together. One is a book he co-authored with Martha Avery, and it's called Campaigning for Christ, uh, because they set up an early apologetics organization called Campaigners for Christ. And uh, this one, the copy I have is, I think, original, uh, published by the boss, by the pilot the publishing company. And this is the company at the time that was publishing the Boston Pilot, the Catholic newspaper for the Diocese of Boston. Hmm. And uh, I think this book may have been the one from 1931. But uh, it starts explaining the organization and the people it's trying to reach, which are three groups, chiefly atheists, Jews, and Protestants. And then, uh, you know, how they, the the members of this group, Avery and Goldstein and and those associated associated with them, got together and what they do and what what they've been doing. And then chapters on some chief topics. Um, But one one of the chapters is religion in the streets the kinds of, of things that he would meet when speaking publicly. So he's dealing with questions from atheists uh, and agnostics, people who belong to what then was called the free thought movement, uh, in religion in general, that's another of his sub, subsets here, a kind of sentimental skepticism, the way he puts it, uh, skepticism about the faith coming from pacifism, and uh, other problems that you know, would come up. So this this uh, campaigning for Christ is sort of explains what the members of his group did, and you know, showing you know, he would quote hundreds of examples of of uh, 
you know, I got on the pulpit or you know, the platform at uh, such and so place somewhere in America because he traveled all over the place. And uh, this is what I said, and this is the response I got, and here's how I replied, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, and so that it's an interesting thing to go along with his autobiography of the Campaign for Christ, because in a way, this book, Campaign for Christ, is both autobiographical for both uh, Goldstein and Moore, you know, Avery Moore, yeah, but also uh, it gives a lot of practical stuff that's useful to the apologist. But the, that stuff was really put together in a later book of his um, that is called Campaigners for Christ Handbook. And this one especially interests me because it's sort of the American parallel of Catholic evidence training outlines which were put together by Frank Sheet and Maisie Ward right. at roughly the same time. Hmm. Because the, that book came, uh, outlines, Catholic Evidence Training Outlines, um, came from the Catholic Evidence Guild in London. And uh, Maisie Ward was the original writer of that, and then her, her husband, Frank Sheen, I, you know, contributed to it. And, but it, its first edition came out I believe in, just shortly before this book would have appeared. So we've got you know, the American variant and the uh, the British variant. And I have to say, you know, I, I find the British variant to be, or have found it, I should, I should say, proved more useful in my own work, in my own development as an apologist. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, I, I think um, Goldstein's book is, is very interesting. And... Uh, he said here, he's got a, a forward to the second edition, uh, and he's got, you know, endorsements from, for example, America Magazine, which back then was actually conservative, and he, which called it an eminently practical book. And the Boston pilot said, a laudable attempt to awaken the propaganda spirit needed among his fellow laymen. He's even got quotations from uh, a newspaper in India, and in another in, in some Latin American country. And Commonweal Magazine said, it's a splendid source book which every Catholic layman who is a bit shaky in apologetics should study. Well, you know, most From Catholic are... <laughs> yeah, that's Commonweal, which back then, again, was pretty conservative. Right, yeah. Uh, we're, we're talking here almost a century ago. But, uh, you know, you've got an acknowledgement back then when, uh, you know, m many of the parents of our present listeners weren't even born yet. But back in those times, there were a lot of people who were still pretty shaky on apologetics. I mean, they, they maybe accepted the faith. They, they would know when something was misrepresented, but they couldn't explain or defend the faith. And so, this book, Campaigners for Christ Handbook, was a training manual for those who wanted to get more involved in apologetics, especially lay people. And that's exactly what Catholic Evidence Training Outlines was also across the ocean. So we had these two um, books trying to do more or less the same kind of thing. Uh, and I don't have as much as a sense historically of how 
uh, Goldstein's project, you know, in the States, um, manifested itself compared to the way the British variant did. I know more of its history than the, than the American version. But I do know that that uh, Goldstein was a traveling man. He he worked up a car, um, an open-air, what we call a convertible nowadays, a log car, uh, and he was able to set it up as his actual speaking platform. And he would have a tall armature coming up from it that holds a loudspeaker, and he would drive around the country, up into small towns, and we just sort of park, set up his equipment, and start talking about the Catholic faith. And, you know, very often in places where nobody had seen the Catholic for decades, uh, and, and so and there was great suspicion about anything Catholic. But this guy would go out there and just travel the country and do this. Wow. Yeah. Then did Father Rubble of Rumble and Cardi fame, uh, did he do something similar like that? I can't uh, remember. You know, I don't remember whether whether the Rumble, who is from Australia, uh, I don't know whether he traveled. I do know, you know, he had a radio program there, and, which was called Radio Replies, yeah. and and uh, eventually all that was put in book form in cooperation with Father Carty, who was an American, and uh, so they they worked with, with one another. I don't even know if they ever met. You know, I don't know. If, <laughs> Rumble ever came to the U.S. or Cardi ever went to Australia, yeah. but uh, and, I, and again, I'm not sure whether either one of those was a traveling apologist. <coughs> okay, but but their their three volume work, uh, Radio Replies, is also a wonderful source book. Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, I was thrilled when you mentioned doing uh, David Goldstein's works because I thought I was the only one to have him on my bookshelf. So uh, <laughs> well. You know, for all I know, you and I and half a dozen other people are the only ones in the country who's, who have his books. I mean, yeah. his name, unfortunately, his name never comes up. When I, for all the, the public lecturing I give and the questions I've had, I've never had a question about him. Nobody's ever brought up his name, which is a great pity. Yes. Because there's well, so much to be learned from him. Absolutely. Well, maybe this program will change things around and, and people, you know, rediscover him. So, Carl, hey, I hear the music. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Yeah, I love it. Thank you very much. All right. And that's Carl Keating, ladies and gentlemen. Check out his stuff at carlkeating.com. He has some classics as well. Wow. The hour is gone. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. This is thing we call Hands-On Apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone.